Born in Italy in 1820, it's a long time ago, there was a woman named um, Florence Nightingale. She felt the call of God to pursue nursing at a time when women typically were not encouraged uh, to be out of the home for anything. During the Crimean War, Nightingale tended to British soldiers, and by documenting different case studies, she was able to prove that seven times more men died from disease than from injuries. After the war, she would found the Nightingale uh, Home for Nurses in England, incorporating methods of sanitation that would change the face of nursing. When you go to a hospital, you go to a doctor's office, much of what you see, much of the sanitation-wise of what you see, is there because of the work that she did. She would die in 1920, yet she serves as an example of the difference a woman can make if she is willing to do whatever God calls her to do. Well, as we continue in our series on the book of Judges today, I want us to look at another woman who serves as a role model not only to women, but to people everywhere. Her name is Deborah, and she is the only named female judge in the Bible. But what makes her stand out most is not the fact that she is a woman. Obviously, there were other women in her day. What makes her stand out is simply the fact that she was a woman who knew the Lord. Listen to the passage with me. I want to start reading from Judges chapter 4, and I'll start reading in verse 3 today. You already know about the endless cycle that the Israelites were trapped in where they would uh, sin and the result of their sin, they would find themselves being oppressed and then they would cry out for God to help them. God would send a deliverer and then they would experience a time of peace, but then they would hit the reset button and they would go through that cycle over and over again. Well, in verse 3, They've sinned, and now we see the consequence of their sin. We're told that King Jabin and his commander Sisera are wreaking havoc on the Israelites. This is what it says. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. The Israelites were overwhelmed. They know that the invading army has far more firepower than themselves. They know that they cannot win on their own. They've tried for 20 years. Think about it. Historians believe that after 20 years of oppression, the Israelites would have been lucky to be able to muster up maybe one or two iron chariots. But we're told there that Jabin has 900 chariots of iron. In addition, the 20 years of oppression were believed to be marked with repeated raiders taking their supplies, destroying crops, murdering men and children, and even raping their women. They've been completely demoralized over that time period. How could they do anything about these atrocities? In fact, it's been a long time. 20 years is an entire generation that has grown up under oppression. They had never known peace in their entire lives. Was it too late for God to send a deliverer? And the answer is obviously no. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she would sit 
under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. And the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now before I get too deep into God's work through Deborah, I want us to address the fact that she is actually a woman in leadership. I've heard others who have claimed that the reason for this had to be that there simply weren't any men to take up the leadership, and maybe she was just filling the void. I will say that later in our story, we do see a little bit of weakness from the men, and certainly that is a possibility. But let's be honest, we look at the beginning of this story, and we don't really see any weakness that's taking place, but rather at the beginning of the story, she is already serving as a judge to the people of Israel. And the reason for that is not the fact that she is a woman, but rather we are told that the anointing of God rests upon her. She spoke with wisdom. The people trusted that what she said was truly the voice of God speaking through her. Where this comes into play is first for our ladies today. Never assume that you cannot accomplish for God something incredible simply because you're a woman. Some people think that there is a limit that God can only use certain people. My daughter is 11 years old, and the last thing I want her to do is to simply take a back seat to God's work. I believe that God has great plans for her. Last week, we talked about being world changers. I believe that God created my daughter to be a world changer, and I have no problem with her being in a marital relationship where her husband has one role and she has another, but never assume that God cannot do a work through you simply because of your gender. For men, this may be hard for some of us to hear, but some of the wisest, most incredible people that we know are women. In other words, don't be so foolish and so arrogant to think that you have cornered the market on God's spirit or his wisdom or even his leadership just because you are a man. I read an article this week regarding something Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said. He was talking about how so many in America have allowed their identity to be based on their victimization. In other words, they are known for certain aspects of themselves, things that maybe people don't like, like their race or their gender or their religious preference. They use statements, it's because I'm, in his case, he used the phrase, it's because I'm black, or it's because I'm Hispanic or white, it's because I'm a woman, it's because I'm too old, or it's because I'm single. But the truth is, what truly identifies us is not race. It's not gender. It's not our socioeconomic status, whether we're single or we're married or even what we do for a living. The thing that should truly identify us is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Deborah is not a judge because she is a woman. She is a judge because the Spirit of God rested upon her and she was filled with that Spirit which brought great wisdom She knew the Lord, and her relationship with God puts her in a great place for her to become God's message, messenger of deliverance. Look at the passage with me, beginning in verse 6. It says, she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. 
I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Wow, what an incredible message for God's people. They've been oppressed for 20 years. These people have been defeated, and finally, God is going to bring them deliverance. But truthfully, the plan seems a little bit shaky. First of all, it's shaky because of who is being asked to lead. The guy's name is Barak, and we'll talk about him a little bit more in just a moment. But the second reason that it's a little bit shaky is the battle plan seems really odd. In chapter 5, we see that the Kishon River Valley would have been a horrible place to fight against Sisera. Remember that they have 900 chariots of iron. Well, this was apparently the dry season. If it were the rainy season, Sisera would never have taken his chariots down there because his chariots would get stuck in the mud. And the moment they get stuck in the mud, they become sitting ducks. They don't have their advantage. But this is the dry season, which means it is so dry that the Kishon River Valley is basically a raceway for these chariots. So as the Sisera and his army come in, they can basically mow down the Israelites on their chariots who, remember the Israelites probably don't have any, if hardly any at all, chariots. So the plan itself seems really, really crazy. But the truth is, it's not that crazy when God's the one who comes up with the plan. Remember Joshua at the walls of Jericho, the craziest battle plan ever. Go march around the city. Don't say anything. Don't do anything. Just march. Go home. Go back. Do it the next day and the next day and the next day. And on the seventh day, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to march seven times around. And then I want you to make all kinds of noise, blow trumpets, just crazy battle plan. Yet the walls of Jericho fell down, didn't they? This was God's plan, and nothing is impossible with God. As Deborah brings this message, it had to produce a combination of both fear and hope. A sense of excitement. Yes, this is finally going to happen. 20 years, we're finally going to be delivered. But also a sense of fear, which again brings us back to Barak. He was what I would call God's almost tool of deliverance. He's an interesting character because here he is. He is being handed the keys to victory. All he has to do is say yes, and the battle is over. But fear gets the best of him. Look at verse 8 with me. It says, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. It's not that he's unwilling to go. He's just unwilling to go without Deborah. Now, my first thought here is, what a wimp. You got to be kidding. This guy is the leader of their army. What a wimp. He needs a girl to go with him. No offense to the girls, but if you're the leader of the army, you shouldn't need someone else to come and hold your hand when you go. This guy could have been the hero. He could have been the champion of his people, but fear got the best of him. Yet as with everything else, perhaps maybe we can relate just a little bit to this wimp. Have you ever heard the phrase, no risk, no reward? Have you ever seen an opportunity, but you've been afraid to pull the trigger on it for fear that you might fail? 
That is Barak. But what really strikes me about Barak is that he trusts in the messenger, Deborah, more than he trusts in the one who gave her the message in the first place. In a way, he's treating her sort of like the Ark of the Covenant. You remember when David would go into battle and he believed that if he had the Ark of the Covenant with him, that they could win. But if they didn't have that Ark, they would be defeated. It's kind of a crazy idea here. Actually, I remember years ago when I was uh, pastoring up in Pennsylvania, I had a lady stop by the office. She was on her way with her little girl to take her for a doctor's appointment. Uh, her daughter was... Uh, Uh, having some very serious health issues, and she stopped by. She said, Pastor, I just wanted to come by to get you to pray for my daughter. And of course, I was honored to be able to do that, and uh, I encouraged her. I said, you know, you can also pray for your daughter as well. She said, oh yeah, I know, but I know that you're a pastor, so you're closer to God, so he's more likely to listen to you than he is to listen to me. And of course, I understand. I'm sure that God sees my name on his caller ID and says, I better take that call. The reality is, the reality is, whether Deborah was there or not, God had a plan and God was going to make a way for this to happen. But for Barak, he's looking at, say, look at, this, looking at this and he's saying, I want to do this, but I just want to be sure that God's there with me, that he's there and he's listening. An interesting question arises out of the story of Deborah and Barak. Did God know? what Barak would choose on this day. My first thought is obviously going to be, yes, God absolutely knew what Barak would choose. God is sovereign. He is all-knowing. So he had to know what was going to take place. But then it makes me wonder, why did he involve Barak in the first place? First note that Barak is still the military leader for the people of Israel. Deborah is a judge. She is not the commander of the army. In other words, they each had their roles to play. The same is true for us. Now, it may seem easier sometimes if we just cut out the middleman. God didn't need Barak to be able to deliver the people of Israel. He could have just done it without him. But the fact was that God had put him in a position for a specific reason. What that means for us is that God has put you in this place at this time for a specific reason. Don't sit back and wait for someone else to do what God has called you to do. Far too many times, I was reading an article this week, actually I posted on the church Facebook page this, uh, I guess it was yesterday. Um, Far too many times in the church we have settled for letting someone else do the work of the church. You've heard the 80-20 rule where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. I've actually heard more recently that those numbers are even more skewed than that at this point. But the reality is all of us are called to be a part of God's work, to be doing the work that he called us to do. So if that's the case, get on it. Stop pretending to be the church and sitting back and watching others do the work that God called you to do. The other part of this issue with Barak is the fact that Barak still becomes the willing servant. He does lead the Israelites in battle. In chapter 5, it tells us that a freak rainstorm comes up out of nowhere, and those iron chariots, remember the 900 chariots of iron? They are rendered useless. Verse 15 tells us in chapter 4 that at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all the chariots 
and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled on foot. He fled on foot because his chariot got stuck in the mud. This great advantage that they had, God turned it into a disadvantage and therefore they are routed. Well, the Israelite army begins to pursue the fleeing soldiers and they systematically kill each one. But this is where God throws a little curveball into the story. Verse 9 tells us that there is a punishment for Barak's lack of faith. Deborah says, certainly I will go with you. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Now, when I read that, my first thought is, Deborah must be plan B for God. After all, she goes with Barak and, well, she is a woman. But she's not plan B. Look at this. We, when we get down to verse 11, it seems like the most random verse, but it's not random at all. It's actually setting the stage for something down the road. It says, now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. This guy is family to the Israelites. Well, when the battle takes place and Sisera flees on foot... He has to find a good hiding place. Beginning in verse 17, look what happens. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent. She covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said, please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep and exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. You know what she did? She went outside the tent and she simply said, nailed it. Just kidding. (laughs) Sorry, I've been saving that all week, looking forward to sharing that with you. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. The opportunity was his, but God allows a seemingly insignificant woman that we know nothing else about, named Jael, to be the one who would defeat the mighty Sisera. I don't know about you, but I didn't see that one coming. What we do see here is there is a great plan B, but it was for Jael to be that plan B. I want you to notice three things about this story today. We see three things primarily in Deborah, and we ought to see the same thing in each one of us as well. The first one is this. 
Deborah was a woman who had an active relationship with God. This was not something that she put on because there was a crisis. She already had an active relationship with God at the very beginning. She is a judge who is in many ways representing God before the people. She has the wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God dwelling in her already. I want to challenge you. The Spirit of God is available to you today, and you ought to have that relationship with God even now. Not in the midst of a crisis, but now. And then when that moment of crisis comes, you'll be prepared just as she was prepared. If you do not have an active relationship with God, you put yourself on very, very dangerous ground. Who would have been the voice of hope for the people of Israel if there had not been one woman who had an active relationship with God during this time of crisis? I don't know, maybe God would have raised up somebody else. The point was, Deborah was ready because her relationship with God was ready also. I don't know what you'll face tomorrow, but I do know that you will need an active relationship with God. If you do not have it, it will create a problem. The second thing that we see is a strong faith in God. When Deborah was given this message, remember the people have been demoralized, they have been broken, they have been defeated over and over again for a generation. But she is given a message that you must go, actually go get Barak and he must go. It's interesting that even though he questioned whether or not he could do it, he says, I'll go, but only if you'll go with me. Even though he questioned, we see no question from her. Yeah, I'll go with you. Why was she so confident? Because she knew the message. And she knew the one who had given the message. The message was that you will walk in victory. I will grant this victory. She could trust in the one who had given that message. I wonder today, do you truly believe in things that are impossible. Again, I don't know the trials that you face today, but are there things that you're facing that you look at it and you think to yourselves, well, I guess that's just what we're going to have to deal with. Or do you still believe you serve a God of impossibilities? Do you still believe that you have a God who can take that which has no possible natural explanation and become reality? I believe today that we serve such a God. We have seen individuals who have been diagnosed with different illnesses where it seems impossible that they would ever be made whole, yet God has chosen to make them whole. We have seen individuals with injuries where, honestly, it surprises doctors to see them recover, yet they recover. We're talking about physical stuff, but man, there are miracles that happen every single day. Sometimes they're huge, dramatic experiences. Sometimes it's simply God's hand of protection upon us in the midst of something that could be a real tragedy. I remember years ago, my pastor from Colorado, uh, he and a group from our church had gone to an African nation. And while they were there, they were, they were supposed to be there for about 10 days. They had one day where they were just going to go do some sightseeing. And in order to do the sightseeing, they had to board a ferry uh, that would be loaded down with all these people, and they would go to a wildlife refuge and just get to go see some really cool things that they didn't get to see all the time. And as they were preparing for this day journey, 
the group decided together that there was still work to be done, so they chose not to go that day. Instead, they worked. It was that very same day that the ferry would actually flip over and over a hundred individuals would die from that accident. And I remember talking with him afterwards and he said, sometimes the miracle is not in the midst of an incredible thing, but it's what God keeps you from. And in his situation, he saw that as an example. I remember September 11th, 2001, my roommate from college, his name is Bob. His wife was supposed to be in the Twin Towers when they fell for a training event. Two days before the event, she was supposed to board a plane, fly up there. She simply didn't feel comfortable going, so she stayed home. I remember him calling me laughing. He had just received a phone call from an official informing him that they regret to inform him that his wife has been declared dead in the attacks on September 11th, and he simply responded, okay, I'll let her know. (laughs) Sometimes the miracle is not necessarily God causing 5,000 people to eat off of a few fish and a few pieces of bread, but it's what God protects you from. Do you know that God's hand of power and miracle is working all the time. Do you believe in a God who can do the impossible? The last thing that we see here is a willing spirit. And I ask you today, are you willing to follow wherever God might lead you? I want to close with an almost unbelievable story. And it's likely one that you've never heard in a history class, but it is very relevant to not only this message, but even to what we're going to do next Sunday. On July 9, 1755, during the French and Indian War, a force of 1,500 British soldiers was ambushed in the open by a small force of French and American Indian fighters shooting from the woods. The British soldiers, trained for European war, made easy targets standing shoulder to shoulder in their bright red uniforms. And their officers were even more exposed on horseback, high above the men on the ground, making perfect targets. The slaughter continued for two hours as nearly 70% of the British soldiers were cut down. One by one, the chief's marksmen shot the British officers from their horses until only one remained. Amazingly, round after round, was aimed at this one man. Twice the young lieutenant's horse was shot from under him. Twice he grabbed another horse. 10, 15, 20 rounds were fired by the sharpshooters. Still the officer remained unharmed. The native warriors stared in disbelief. Their rifles seldom missed. The chief realized that a mighty power must be shielding this man and commanded, stop firing. This one is under special protection from the great spirit. Eventually, the lieutenant colonel gathered the remaining British troops and led them to safety. That evening, as the last of the wounded were being cared for, the officer noticed an odd tear in his coat. It was a bullet hole. He rolled up his sleeve and looked at his arm directly under the hole. There was no mark on the skin. Amazed, he took off his coat and found three more holes where bullets had passed through his coat but stopped 
before they reached his body. Nine days after the battle, this young lieutenant colonel wrote this to his brother. By the all-powerful dispensations of God, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat, and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side. The 23-year-old officer went on to become the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army and the first president of the United States. During the years that followed in his long career, this man, George Washington, was never once wounded in battle. Know that if God calls you to do something, he will always enable you to do it, regardless of how impossible it may sound. I don't know what God's calling you to do, but if you truly know him, you know that you can trust him, and he will make a way. If you would, bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we thank you for the example that is found in your word of a woman who truly believed that you could do the impossible. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you are still the same God that called her. Thank you for the many times that you have called us to do things that are beyond our comprehension and our capabilities. Yet you have been faithful to make a way. Lord, I pray for each individual who is here today that you would make us your willing vessels. Help us to be people who are not limited by what other people think we can do or even what we think we can do. But help us to be people who simply trust and an almighty God who can do far more than we could ever imagine. Lord, I pray today that each one of us would know you the way Deborah knew you. Help us to develop a relationship with you that is more than just something we talk about. It's more than something that we exercise on Sunday morning, but it is a part of who we are seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in us, that we would be the people you called us to be. And then I also pray, Lord, that you would simply use us in whatever way you see fit. Lord, help us to be obedient servants in the church. Help us not to sit back and wait for someone else to ask us to do something. Lord, help us to be able to look at the needs that are present and to immediately simply follow your lead. Help us to be people who are obedient servants. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be servants in the community. Help us to see the broken and to go out and to love them and to care for them, to find ways to minister to them and meet needs. But we know there are other people who are probably more gifted than us in certain ways. But Lord, you've placed us here for this time and this place for a specific reason. I pray that you would have your way in us. Lord, may you be honored as we become your servants. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It is a privilege to be able to, be, be able to worship with you all this morning, to be able to celebrate God's goodness. I will tell you that uh, next Sunday is going to be a little bit different. Jerry mentioned it. Uh, we will have one combined service, uh, and that will be at 1030. If you show up at 10, you are on time. You're still okay. It's not a problem. 
Uh, but next Sunday, we will be in the Family Life Center for one large service with both groups from the 10 o'clock service and the 1130 service coming together. Uh, it will be a great time. It is not the same program that we have done for the 4th of July for the last, uh, I guess, several years. Um, but honestly, I am so excited about the service next Sunday, what God's going to do through it. And I believe that this will be something that you will be excited about as well. Uh, I thank you for being here this morning. We invite you to come back. Again, we have uh, new attenders uh, get together this evening at 6 o'clock. We'd love to have you here for that. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.